Well, let's turn our Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 14 that we read earlier. <clears throat> and uh, one of the great themes of this chapter, of course, is concerning things indifferent and the way in which we should deal with things that are non-essentials, if you will, in, in our faith. Matters of opinion, we, we, might, we might say. Uh, so I'm going to clear up one matter of opinion right now, <clears throat> just at the beginning of the session. We sang today, this evening, we sang two Genevan hymns. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the hymn we sang at the beginning of the service is one of those Genevan hymns. We used to sing it in Scotland a lot because Scotland was Presbyterian and uh, we out Geneva Geneva in many ways, uh, but I know all of the Psalms off by heart and was dismayed that uh, Josiah sang one verse with one word differently from me. We're doing a duet up here, and, uh, <clears throat> and, and I thought, he, he's got that wrong, but he, of course, Josiah never gets anything wrong. He was reading the words in the book. And so I went back to Psalm 100. It's the, 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 the tune is called the Old Hundredth, this Hundredth Psalm. And I looked at the beginning of, of the Psalm in the, the Old Testament. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Then I looked at this hymn again. And this is what it says. It's ridiculous. Serve him with fear. I said, there's no need, no mention of fear there. That's not what we sing. Serve him with mirth is what we sing. Is that right? Serve him with mirth. Somebody, somebody thought there was too much joy in this psalm when it was going into the Trinity hymn book, and they fixed it. Now, that, that's an, that was a, an interesting little thing. And you think, well, that's a diversion. Get back to the text. Well, I think, that, I think that this is an area where Christians very often have opinions about things. Some Christians are more serious than other Christians. Then uh, others never break a smile and get offended when there is a smile. And woe betide if there's any laughter in church. That would be a dreadful thing. Mr. Spurgeon used to say to, well, he said to a woman who once complained about his mirth and laughter, Madam, if you knew, if you knew what was in my heart and the laughter from which you are spared, you would be thanking me, not criticizing me. Uh, so there are matters that are indifferent. This, by the way, is not a matter that's indifferent because this, this was uh, taken from the, the 100th Psalm and does not rightly reflect what's in the Bible. <clears throat> well, that's just a little introduction to the sermon this evening. Uh, uh, one, one of the things we've seen is that the Apostle Paul in this chapter has been talking is speaking about the things that are disputed amongst us. These are things for which we don't have chapter and verse. These are implications, deductions we take from 
the text of Scripture, and in making those deductions and drawing out those implications, we can sometimes find ourselves in disagreement with one another. And Paul is uh, urging, urging us to, to not allow those things to divide us, not allow those things to be a cause of us walking out in each other in the church uh, and falling out with each other, uh, nor looking down on one another and despising one another. And so he begins by saying that the one who's weak in faith is to be welcomed and not quarreled with over opinions. One person believes he may eat something, anything, at all, while the weak person eats only vegetables. He's not talking here about a, a diet kind of thing, stuff. Uh, Paul would be unaware of vegetarianism uh, as we have it today. But this, this is a religious thing. A religious, these religious ordinary practices that had religious connotations in this church in Rome. And he is going to talk about, he talks about diet. We looked at that last time, uh, eating and drinking. Uh, we saw that these were matters of indifference to the apostle. Paul, you can drink whatever you want, whenever you want it. That's Paul's uh, clear view. You can eat whatever you want, whenever you want it. That's his clear view. And if you feel guilty about doing it, you can abstain whenever you want to. And that's okay with Paul, and therefore it's okay with Jesus. But we move on this, this evening to, to look more closely at what our attitude should be to non-essential things. Let's look at this in verse 5. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So there are, the issue is the issue of special days, sacred days. And I think Martin Lloyd-Jones is right when he says that the idea in view here is the idea of Sabbaths and uh, Sabbath observance and so on. Now you will know that the principle of the Sabbath is written in the moral law of God. <clears throat> the Sabbath is the day when God is to be worshipped. It was more complex under the Jews than it is for us, uh, but the Sabbath is, is the day when God is to be worshipped, and we are to devote ourselves to thinking about God. It's, a, it's put into our lives to bring God back into the agenda of our lives before we go back out into the world for the rest of the week. And in Israel, not only was the Sabbath in the moral law, the Sabbath was also in the ceremonial law. And there were, there were rules and regulations for how you observed the Sabbath. By the time Jesus comes, those rules and regulations have been augmented. They've just kind of got out of control. And you find Jesus himself and his disciples regularly under fire from the Pharisees, who are extremely holy people, uh, as they criticized Jesus and his disciples for abusing the Sabbath day. The Sabbath became one of the crunch issues uh, 
over which Jesus came into a head-to-head conflict with the religious leaders of his day. And he made some categorical statements about the Sabbath. He said that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. That means he decides what we do on the Sabbath day. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. And then he told us, the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath is not to destroy human life and joy and happiness and coming into his presence with mirth and gladness. The Sabbath is to be a day of joy in which the people of God gather to the worship of God. Now, when I was growing up in Scotland, Sundays were considered to be the Sabbath day. Christians have not always observed Sunday as the Sabbath day. You go back to the early part of Christianity, and and you will find really for the first four centuries, three centuries at least, that Christians were divided over whether they should be observing the Jewish Sabbath, which is the Saturday, or the first day of the week. We know that the first day of the week is already being observed as the Lord's Day. It's already being called that in the Bible. We know that the Christians had to go to work, of course, on the first day of the week, but they would come together in the evening, and sometimes in the early morning, I suppose, before work, but certainly in the evening. We have examples of that in the Corinthian letters, and also in the book of Acts. They would come together to worship. They would come together to Here, the Apostle Paul, for example, preached a sermon. One occasion, he was doing that on this first day of the week, and the people are all gathered in this home, and Paul's preaching, and some poor man falls out the window because he falls asleep in the middle of Paul's sermon. Nobody has ever fallen off the balcony into one of my sermons yet. Uh, But, you know, there's still, where there's life, there's hope. Uh, But... uh, So we have these examples in the New Testament of the observance of the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. Revelation chapter 1, John is in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is the day to observe Christian worship. Well, uh, there were those right up, as as I say, until the third century who, who practiced the Lord's Day on Saturday and those who practiced it on Sunday. So there was a dispute there. And the Seventh-day Adventists, who still believe that we should be worshiping on the Jewish Sabbath day, uh, hold that against us. They say that the day was changed by a pope and by the emperor uh, Constantine, which is not historically true. It was regularized, uh, regularized as the Sunday rather than the Saturday but it was already being observed and had been observed by the majority of Christians up until that point of view. I'm just giving you that as background, because the Sabbath is no doubt one of the days that's in the mind of the apostle as he speaks. And uh, for, he, he does so again in Galatians. You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I feel I've wasted my effort on you, he says. Colossians 2, therefore, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival or a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. They're a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. 
And what we discover about the first day of the week is that it was chosen particularly because it was the day of resurrection. It was the day when the Lord Jesus uh, met his disciples in the evening of that first day of the week after he had been dead, buried, and then raised again. And the first day of the week is the beginning of the new creation. In this new creation, things have changed. The ceremonial law and the political law of Israel do no longer apply to the church. The moral law still applies, but the ceremonial law has been fulfilled in Christ. And the political law has been fulfilled in Christ. He is the king. The kingdom has come. We're part of the kingdom. And we now serve under the King of kings and Lord of lords. Uh, in his uh, commentary on Romans, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones takes uh, this position very clearly. And he goes on to give an illustration uh, uh, as he talks about the Sabbath day and various uh, views of what we should do on the Lord's day. And he talks about what he calls extreme Sabbatarianism. People, he says, there are people who in their observance of the Sabbath, whether it's the seventh day or the first day, have gone to extremes beyond anything taught in the Scriptures. He says, our Lord had to reprimand the Pharisees and the scribes more than once on this issue, and he told them the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And he gives an illustration. He says, I remember in my youth hearing that if any members of the Presbyterian Church of Wales walked on the promenade at Aberystwyth, that's uh, by the seaside, on a Sunday, they were to be disciplined before the church. They were to be disciplined before the church. And this has been often regarded as he says Puritanism, although he has an example from the Middle Ages of uh, a pope or, or a bishop, rather, in a place called Avalon, who taught that it was a grievous sin to walk more than a few yards on the Sunday. So it's not just Puritans, but even Papists who, who practice that extreme Sabbatarianism. Well, Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, the Sabbath is a day that we set apart in order that we may give ourselves to the worship of God and to the knowledge of Him. And he warns then, as he goes on, he warns against us making burdens for ourselves, but in particular burdens that we want to impose on other people on the Sabbath day. And that's what Paul is addressing here. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Everyone should be fully convinced in his own mind. That's the principle that the apostle is putting before us. Where there is no clear biblical statement of how you should observe the Lord's Day or any other day for that matter, apart from the principles we're clear about, that in the Lord's Day we're to set aside our money and give it to the Lord's work, we're to come together with God's people on the Lord's Day to worship Him, and there are no other clear indicators given to the church of 
how we should observe the Lord's Day, it means then that anything else you do on the Lord's Day that is peculiar from any other day must be something of which you are convinced in your own mind. You see, the whole argument of chapter 14 and 15 is that in Christ we have freedom, we have liberty, we have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Each of us has been anointed by the Holy One, and our consciences are to be gripped by the Word of God, and our consciences are being renewed by the Holy Spirit as we hear the Word of God and submit to the Word of God, and we are to be convinced in our conscience because he's going, on, going to go on to argue that if you do something against your conscience, you are sinning. Someone else may do the very same thing, not against their conscience, and it not be sin. But if you do it, and you have a conscience about it, you feel guilty about it, don't do it. I'm going to be saying that as, as we look further into the text. Be fully convinced in your own mind. Be that, that's part of the unpacking of that phrase back in chapter 12 about being transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Bible simply does not give in the New Testament a list of do's and don'ts of what you do or don't do on the Lord's Day other than the command that we should be meeting together for his sake and resting from our labor, if we possibly can, on the Lord's Day. Not everyone will have, be able to do that, of course, in the nature of the way in which our work happens in these days. So, be convinced in your own mind. Lloyd-Jones is very helpful in, in this whole area. If you get a grip of this book, it will help you very much indeed. But there's also the, the, the issue of the fact that he's talking here not just about one sacred day. He's talking here about multiple sacred days. Uh, that's the idea of the text. Uh, there, there are days, he says. Now, what kind of days are these? The, the, uh, uh, are these days like Christmas Day? Uh, the Puritans, people who dropped our Westminster Confession of Faith, didn't recognize Christmas Day. Calvin did, actually. And many of the, reform, the reformers on the con continental Europe did. Martin Luther loved Christmas. It's from Luther that we get the Christmas tree. Uh, and uh, Lloyd-Jones himself knows that he's coming under criticism from the church of his day, Lloyd-Jones' day, because he has a service on Christmas Day. And he's saying, why shouldn't I have a sermon service on Christmas Day? And why shouldn't I preach on Good Friday and Easter Sunday? And perhaps Trinity Sunday, Pentecost. Why shouldn't I do those things? So long as I don't make those things burdens that everybody else has to observe, so long as I don't make them kind of something that people are compelled to do, you can do them. You can observe them. So long as you don't make a law out of them, you can make, you make up your mind that on the, on the Lord's Day, and, and I guess by and large, this is what Christine and I have done, but 
but we don't, we don't not do it as a matter of law, because we'll do it if we are in the situation where we have to do it. But we, we typically don't eat out on the Lord's Day. But I would never say to anyone else, you shouldn't, because that would be wrong of me to do that. I have absolutely no biblical grounds or basis for saying you shouldn't do it. None whatsoever. I think I told you that when I went to Canada, they went out to the Swiss chalet. That was the popular place they went to. It came back to me because I was in Switzerland. I saw this place, Swiss chalet. Oh yeah, that's, that's the name of that chicken restaurant that used to be in Canada. And uh, I, I was actually shocked that people would have gone out to eat on the Lord's Day. But God dealt with my oversensitive conscience on that issue. You, but you've got to be thoroughly convinced in your own mind. And, and Lloyd-Jones addresses this in his book uh, in terms of holy days. Uh, I, I believe that it's quite appropriate for us to acknowledge those days when the day of Pentecost, for example, Trinity Sunday, uh, Christmas Day, Easter Day, uh, Good Friday, uh, I think it's, it's quite legitimate for you, for example, if you uh, feel that following the, the preparation for Easter that we call Lent, is that something that you wanted to do? I, I, you could do it, but we're not, we're not going to impose it on anybody else, but, but it can be a discipline for you. If that's a discipline for you, I'm not going to judge you if you do that. That's a, the principle that Paul is laying down here. We're not to judge one another. That's the thing on things that don't have clear biblical basis, either one way or the other, for doing. It's so liberating. The Bible is actually more liberating than we are. We're the ones who dream up things that we impose on other people. So Paul goes on, he says, not only have you to think for yourself and uh, you must also be clear in your motives, you see. Why do I observe the Lord's day and come to church? I do so to the Lord. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God for the meat before he eats it. He who abstains does so to the Lord. He gives thanks to the Lord for not eating it. It's the whole principle, you see. The apostles addressing both sides of the, of the divide here, the weak and the strong, the abstainers and the participants. And he's reminding us in verse 17, he goes on to remind us the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And that applies to people who observe special days. The one who stops all worldly activity on a Sunday does so in order to serve the Lord, in this case by worship and study and acts of mercy. The one who's free to do anything on the Lord's Day should be able to do that in order that they might serve the Lord as well. And without forgetting that the primary, but one thing we do have to do is to come and gather as God's people for worship. So here are two Christians in the same church. 
They hold different views about some particulars. They're both concerned to bring glory to God. They're both anxious to behave as Christians. They both give thanks to God for what they have and for what they're able to do. The apostle says that we must not judge one another or dismiss one another because we serve the same Lord and Master and we share the same motive, which is to please Him. Then the third thing he says is this in verse 7. None of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Now, here's the principle here. There is a temptation that I have seen among some over the, over the years, over 50, nearly 50 years of being a minister. And uh, there's a temptation of some people to project onto other people their own personal hang-ups or issues. It's not enough for them to have their own problems. They want you to have their problem too. They want you to see things their way. They want to influence you in their direction. They want to change your mind. And they're well-meaning, of course. Many times they're well-meaning people. But what they fail to grasp is that that's above their pay grade to try and change your mind on things that are indifferent we're talking about, not, not the doctrines of the faith. There are no doctrines of the faith that apply to the Lord's Day other than the worship of God on the Lord's Day, that, as an example. And in verses 7 and 8, what the apostle is saying is this, understand that each individual believer, as well as having a conscience of their own, is only answerable to their master, who is Christ. You're not my master. I'm not your master. Christ is my master. Christ is your master. Your business is to deal with Christ for yourself. You're answerable to him. You pray about the issues that are being brought up. Uh, people shouldn't really be bringing them up to try and influence you anyway, but you should be praying about the things you do uh, as we should in everything we do in our lives and bringing them to, to Christ, bringing them before Him in prayer, and seeking His wisdom and His, and His help. He applies this in verse 6 to the strong and the weak, to observing days in the Lord, to eating or abstaining to the Lord. He broadens out the principle into all of life. None of us lives to Himself alone. None of us dies to Himself alone. He's saying there more than simply what John Donne says in his poem, no man is an island entire of himself, every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. Those words are true. And what we do will always affect other people for good or ill. But the context is making it clear that the comparison is with the Lord. He's saying that no Christian, not one of us, should serve his own ends in this life. Not one of us should assert his or her own will upon other people 
that every one of us should live our lives under this rule. We live to Him. If we live, we live to the Lord. All the parts of our lives, our thoughts and our actions and our ambitions and our decisions, all are to be carried out with a view to what pleases and glorifies the Lord. The best summary is in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the chief end of man, that is humans, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Chief purpose of my life is not self-fulfillment, self-achievement, self-realization, or self-worth, or self-justification. The chief end of my life is to glorify God. That's why we exist. And I wonder if you believe this, Christian. This would settle many of our discussions. It would settle many of our discussions about what churches are for, what churches exist for. Do we live simply uh, to keep the doors open, to amuse those who come, to entertain the… well, we don't do much entertaining here, but to entertain the, the, the population that attend, the congregation that gathers, or are we living quorum Deo before God, before the face of God? Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 5. He, Christ, died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. His physical death and view here, the circumstances of a believer's death as of their life are determined not by his or her will or in consideration of his or her own interests, but are wholly in the hands of the Lord. It's the Lord who sets the time of death. It's already in his diary for you and me. As Christians, we need to believe that God is sovereign in our deaths as well as in our lives, and he's sovereign over the manner and the timing of our deaths. Some of us will die suddenly, unexpectedly. Others of us will die after a prolonged and protracted period of illness and pain. Some will die after a long life of service. Some will be cut off in the midst of a busy and effective life. Some die as children or as young people. Are we to consider the death of a young person a tragedy or a mistake? Well, it is to us, of course, both of those. And so we must find our rest and our comfort in the sovereignty of God. You remember that conversation Jesus had with Peter that John records in John 21. Jesus is telling Peter how Peter is going to die. He, he tells Peter, you're going to die by crucifixion. Well, that wasn't the best news <laughs> Peter got that day. But he goes on and he says to Jesus, well, how's he going to die? Points to John. Tell me, how, how's he going to die? And Jesus says, that's none of your business, Peter. That's none of your business. You follow me. And there's a sense of which that's what this text is telling us today. I want to read from John Calvin. He says this, we, we are taught the rule by which to live and die 
so that if He, God, lengthens our life in the midst of continual sorrow and weariness, we are not to seek to depart before our time. But if He should suddenly recall us in the prime of our life, we must always be ready for our departure. So whether we live or ever we die, we are the Lord's. We've been learning from Revelation, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. And a kind of uh, one, of the, one of the Puritans that I don't recommend, Richard Baxter, puts it in the hymn like this. If life be long, I will be glad that I may long obey. If short, then why should I be sad to soar to endless day? The Heidelberg Catechism puts it like this. Death for the Christian is not a payment for sin, but an entrance into life. Death is the servant that opens the door into life for the believer, into that land of pure delight in which the saints immortal reign. And so the punchline, whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. We belong to the Lord. Christ died and came back to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. He's our Lord, and because we belong to him, we're only answerable to him, ultimately. Oh, yes, there's a sense in which when it comes to moral behavior, doctrinal error, we're answerable to the church. But in these areas that I've talked about that where it is, there are no rules and there are no guidelines, only opinions, then you are answerable for your opinion to the Lord. Now, some people, I, I, I know this, are uncomfortable with freedom. They think freedom will lead to anarchy. That was one of the big concerns of one of the sides of the Reformation, that freedom would lead to anarchy. Of course, that's always a possibility. People have a will, and people sometimes will to do the wrong thing. But it is the most remarkable thing that even in our Westminster standards, there are two chapters given to the subject of Christian liberty. Because Christian liberty is one of the wonderful things about the gospel. In Christ, we've been set free from the bondage parts of the law, from the additions of the law, the applications of the law, which were okay for Israel, but we're not there anymore. The Lord of the Sabbath has come. The writer to the Hebrews says, we have already entered into our Sabbath. We're already at rest. Jesus said, come to me, and I will give you rest. We've already come to Jesus and found our rest in him. And we're waiting for that final Sabbath, that great celebration on that day when we see him face to face. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us as we try to work out the practicalities of these texts for ourselves. And as we're a bit scared because as we listen to Paul, apparently we are to work them out for ourselves. And we're used to being told what to do, and we struggle with that sometimes. But we pray, Lord, that this evening you would give us the help of your Holy Spirit to live to your glory.
for Jesus' sake. Amen.